You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ukraine warns of hybrid warfare during UN meetings. Proton Mail DDoS continues. Security concerns surrounding ZTE, Huawei, and China Mobile. Retail data breaches. A quiz app's backup data is accessed by unauthorized parties. The FBI, FTC, and SEC sift through Facebook's answers to questions for the record. And a strange set of symptoms among diplomats in China arouses suspicion of infrasound weapons. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, July 3rd, 2018. Ukraine takes the occasion of a counter-terrorist officials meeting at the UN to outline its experience of Russian hybrid warfare, especially information operations, and the use of nominally irregular and thus deniable forces on the ground. Ukraine has been particularly affected by direct Russian cyber attack, notably the two takedowns of portions of its power grid and the large NotPetya infestations. It's noteworthy that the country's counter-terror officials should choose to single out propaganda and disinformation to give this style of information operations its traditional name for particular mention. Proton Mail says that the distributed denial-of-service attacks it sustained continue and that users may experience periodic outages. The privacy-friendly service was hit last week by the Apophis Group, a collection of hacktivist skids who've exchanged hard words with ProtonMail over that attack and others. They've told Bleeping Computer that they resented ProtonMail's CTO calling them clowns on Twitter. The outages that continue suggest an unusual inveteracy of the attackers. Neither the lulls nor hurt feelings would seem to be adequate motivation, but who at this point knows? In any case, ProtonMail is taking the usual measures to ward off the jamming. Sentiment against entanglement with Huawei continues to run through Australian opinion. Fears there, as in the U.S. and elsewhere, center on the company's alleged closeness with Chinese intelligence and security services. There may be other concerns as well. South Korean media note reports by CVE Details that Huawei devices may suffer from an uncomfortably large number of security issues. But disentangling a national telecommunications infrastructure from a large, low-cost device provider is no trivial matter. China is, of course, a significant trading partner, and as reaction to U.S. sanctions against ZTE demonstrates, it's not a one-way street. Chinese companies depend upon their international trading partners as well. Huawei does have its defenders, in Australia and elsewhere. One such is in the U.S., where United Telecom, a wireless telecommunications provider based in Kansas, says that it would have to suspend service if a proposed FCC ban on the Chinese company's devices were to proceed. 
The U.S. administration takes aim at another Chinese company. China Mobile has been denied a Section 214 license on security grounds. China Mobile is the world's largest mobile phone service, but its customers are mostly domestic Chinese users. It had been attempting to enter the U.S. market for the past seven years, but that door seems to have been firmly shut. According to the U.S. Department of Commerce, granting the carrier license to operate in the United States would pose, quote, unacceptable national security and law enforcement risks, end quote. Typeform, whose widely used app delivers online quizzes, businesses, and government agencies use to make their sites stickier, has disclosed that it discovered a data breach last week, compromising first names, dates of birth, mobile numbers, and email addresses entered by quiz takers. The company has been notifying its customers, the organizations who use their services, not the individuals who took the quizzes, and much information about the incident comes from those customers. It appears, according to the register, that the information accessed was in a partial backup of Typeform's data. Enthusiasm for cloud services continues unabated, but for many organizations, and particularly small businesses, it can be challenging to decide which services to move to the cloud and how quickly. Vince Arnasia is with Five9, a company that helps organizations with these transitions, and he offers his perspective. A lot of companies are currently dealing with the situation around whether they stay private cloud, do they go to hybrid cloud, do they move everything to public cloud. And I think the, the main thrust of it is around where do you put the workloads? Where do you put the workloads that are sensitive? Where do you put the workloads that are more database-centric? Uh, that's really where a lot of enterprises, whether they be small, medium, or large, are uh, assessing their needs going forward. And what do you suppose the deciding factors for people should be as to where they place their various assets? So a lot of it has to do with you know the industry and the security regulations that the corporation is bound to. That obviously factors into their decisions around do they go into an all-public cloud infrastructure or do they somehow balance it between private and public? What sort of security posture they need to have uh, in these uh, computing environments? You know, obviously the the types of applications and workloads they're running. So what we're seeing is a lot of companies are betting on hybrid. They're basically betting on the fact that it's just like anything else. There's always a middle ground that ends up being what's typically utilized versus one extreme or another. And so hybrid seems to be that middle ground where a lot of companies are settling and obviously trying to figure out, you know, do I put my sensitive applications here? Do I put my databases here? How do I balance it? And so a lot of that's uh, you know, being uh, discussed internally, I'm sure, with CIOs, CISOs, et cetera. And, and how much do they benefit from diversity, of not putting all their eggs in one basket or you know, have, spreading backups across various systems, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. That's critical, right? You need to be multi-vendor. You need to be, uh, in some regards, multi-cloud. You need to be multi-cloud uh, computing environment in order to spread around the applications, workloads, databases, et cetera. So a lot of companies that are larger in size can take that approach and you know manage the cost and manage the infrastructure. But a lot of the smaller companies that uh, we talk to, for example, have a tough time with that, that sort of multi-pronged approach across these different cloud computing environments. 
Now, for those smaller companies, what typically is holding them back? Is it complexity or cost or a combination of the two? It's a combination of the two, plus if you factor in the unknown, right? A lot of these smaller companies just don't know enough in regards to the cloud computing environments. And so they're they're, they're risk-averse because they're, whatever they have currently, even though it might be band-aided together, is working. And so do they want to really disrupt that? If so, what's the process involved? Typically, they're looking for a vendor to handhold them through the process because they just don't have the skill set, the, the comfort level, the knowledge, the time, you know, the resources. And so they're hamstrung in regards to that sort of uh, notion of moving to hybrid. Now, what's your advice to people who are looking to make that transition as easy as possible? What should their approach be? So, I mean, obviously, just like anything else, you want to start small. You want to assess you know, the options around public cloud. You want to get a couple of workloads set up with your tenant in Azure, for example. You want to think about um, you know, the, the simple workloads that aren't necessarily production or sensitive in nature, putting those out there. Um, you know, possibly using uh, technologies and tools from certain vendors that make it easier for you to do it all through uh, a platform uh, that allows for you to manage and secure that environment. I think well, we've seen in, in my interaction with a lot of our customers, uh, a lot of them six months ago were assessing Azure, and now they're actually moving workloads to Azure now that they've gotten more comfortable. And so it's one of those things where it takes a little time to to do it, but you've got to put your toe in the water and, and uh, you know start to, to, to do that over some, some time. That's Vince Arnasia from Five9. Adidas continues to investigate customer data exposure. It's not alone. Fortnum and Mason, purveyors of luxury goods, has sustained a breach said to affect more than 20,000 customers, and a third-party recruiting service, PageUp, used by British hospitality company Whitbread, may have lost applicants' data. U.S. federal law enforcement and regulatory agencies are close-reading Facebook's long response to Congress on data abuse. This isn't merely picking over the bones of Cambridge Analytica, but appears to be a set of serious, independent inquiries by organizations with diverse roles, missions, and responsibilities. The agencies looking are the FBI, as one would expect, but also the somewhat flintier Federal Trade Commission and Securities and Exchange Commission. Finally, there's a very odd case from China, similar to events that have occurred over the years in other diplomatic stations. It's not strictly speaking a cybersecurity issue, but it does touch on intelligence and other forms of diplomatic security. U.S. consular personnel have been moved out of China after odd sounds and strange debilitation were reported. The symptoms are said to be neurological, similar in some respects to a concussion, and the reported sounds are described as simply abnormal but not extraordinarily loud, indeed not even audible to normal human hearing. What to make of the event is uncertain. Explanations range from some sort of deliberate attack to malfunctioning surveillance equipment to shared delusion, but the symptoms are real enough, whatever their origin, for the State Department to take them seriously. U.S. and Canadian diplomats and their families experienced unusual symptoms in Cuba during 2017. Again, the cause was obscure, but there was inconclusive public speculation about some form of acoustic device. Symptoms included hearing loss, headaches, visual problems, difficulty with balance, and sleep problems. 
Speculation at the time turned toward Russia, but again nothing was definitively established, at least publicly. Similar symptoms were reported in Tashkent by U.S. diplomatic and aid personnel accredited to Uzbekistan. The likeliest explanation would appear to be infrasound, low-frequency sound waves below the human hearing range. U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo has raised the matter with his Chinese counterparts during talks otherwise devoted to North Korean matters. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Rick Howard. He's the Chief Security Officer at Palo Alto Networks. He also heads up Unit 42, which is their threat intel team. Rick, welcome back. Um, you and I have talked about the Cyber Threat Alliance before. Uh, you've got some updates for us. Uh, why should the Cyber Threat Alliance be on folks' radar? Yeah, it's, uh, and you're right. We have talked about it in the past. Okay, It's kind of an ISAC for security vendors, but it has really two key differences from the other ISACs in the world. All right, First is that you have to share to be part of the group, okay? Um, in other ISACs, uh, most people don't have the resources to share. So, uh, but in this, you can't be part of the club, okay, unless you share and we measure it daily. And the second unique thing about it is that since we are security vendors, we already have the ability to update our own products with new intelligence. It happens uh, with all the automation in the background. It's why you buy us, right? But now, if you get a bunch of vendors sharing intelligence with each other, we can send 
and get prevention controls deployed around the world in minutes to hours if you're using one of the products from the members of the alliance, all right? So it's a really interesting idea. Customers have been asked to, after us for years to get organized. Well, we finally got it going and it's working. And the use case though that proves the point that this is something that should have been existing for years finally happened a couple of weeks ago, okay? The, the Cisco intelligence team, Talos, Mm-hmm. published an intelligence report on an adversary playbook called VPN Filter. Are you familiar with this? Oh, sure. We've reported on it. Sure. So this active campaign compromised some 500,000 home routers, and it installed the malware installed had a brick option, which allowed the attackers, if they wanted to, to destroy all those routers with just a push of the button. Now, Cisco uh, had been working on this report for several months in secret and had been working with law enforcement to arrest the individuals involved. Because Cisco was part of the Cyber Threat Alliance, Talos, the Talos analysts briefed the entire VPN filter situation to the alliance members and provided details around the adversary playbook use way before they published it in public, right? And so all the alliance members were able to get pro- uh, protection controls in place before the information went public and the bad guys knew what we were talking about, okay? And so this is why the Cyber Threat Alliance exists to distribute those prevention controls around the world in a timely fashion, in this case, ours, to better protect our mutual customers, okay? And this is why, um, this is the plug here, right? Why network defenders should not buy equipment and services from vendors who are not in the alliance. There is no reason that a security vendor should not be part of this community to help our mutual customers. So here is the ask for your listeners. Mm -hmm. When security vendors visit and they try to sell them their wares, they should be asking them, why aren't they a member of the Cyber Threat Alliance? And better yet, if they are publishing a formal RFP to replace some security kit this year, make those vendors answer it in writing. Now, they can still choose them. I'm not trying to force them into choose them, all right? But they should make that vendor go through the pain, all right? Because they absolutely <laughs> should be part of the Cyber Threat Alliance, and we want them in the club. All right. Well, it's a compelling uh, pitch for sure. As always, Rick <laughs> Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>